possible that we are going to see inflation decline gradually from here. But in my opinion, the overall growth inflation mix is going to be persistently much worse than it was prior to all of this. And what I mean by that, for every percent of growth that you're squeezing out of the economy, you're going to end up with somewhat higher inflation coming through as a result. Um, so that's going to be a long-term hangover, which is going to weigh long-term on stock market valuations. Whether in an inflationary environment, stock market prices decline substantially is a bit more difficult to predict. But Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. For over a year now, I've been boasting in Fortune and Freedom that we predicted the inflation spike that supposedly nobody saw coming. But the truth is that my guest today, John Butler, was the one who saw it coming way back in May of 2021. John, thanks for coming back on. I want to dig into the future today, but in order to do so, I think we've got to uncover what allowed you to predict the inflation spike back in 2021. And it's all about producer prices, not consumer prices, as I remember anyway. Very much so. That is, I regarded coronavirus and more specifically the policy responses to uh, the pandemic. I saw them as a combination of a negative supply shock, that is artificial constraints in the supply chain due to various forms of lockdown across the world. However, combined with a lot of money being thrown around by governments to support demand and applying a classic Milton Friedman monetarist analysis, constrained supply plus ample liquidity to support demand was a recipe for sharply higher prices. And sure enough, you began to see it creeping into supply chains by the spring of 2021. Producer prices really started to pick up and it was just not only clear to me, but I drew the analysis out um, to a level that I, most others weren't willing to go to. That is, I was basically saying that it'll be a miracle if inflation doesn't spike uh, into the double digits at some point. Uh, and, 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 but sure enough, it happened pretty damn quickly after that. I was kind of surprised then just how quickly also consumer prices began to rise uh, as companies began to uh, push some of those price pressures through uh, to the consumer. How would you apportion the blame between the idea of lockdowns causing a supply shock and, and producer prices spiking versus uh, a monetary stimulus, fiscal stimulus, you know, triggering too much demand? Who, whose fault is it between the two? Well, I mean, you, you could say it's the same set of characters kind of working on both sides. That is, we, we live in this strange age where fiscal and monetary policy are uniquely strongly correlated. Um, which is kind of a, a, an implied effect of essentially zero interest rates. Uh, and, and, and the amount of policy coordination you get or you've had and you've seen post-2008 uh, between monetary and fiscal policy is very, very high in a historical comparison. So, you know, in, in a way, you're assigning blame to the same group. Now, that said, if we're going to look at specific actions, I would actually say the supply chain is more important. It's more subtle, but it's more important. Because in theory, a lot of the money that was thrown around um, on the demand side, you know, it could have been saved. Some of it was saved. 
But supply constraints are supply constraints. And when you're talking supply constraints, when it comes to basic consumer goods, food, clothing, things like this, then there's no avoiding it, right? That's going to show up uh, as inflation, even amidst a stable uh, set of monetary conditions, right? So I, I think it may be more difficult to analyze in detail, but that to me is ultimately the bigger culprit here. All that toilet paper hoarding suddenly doesn't look so bad when suddenly the, uh, the, the price of toilet paper is exploding in, in double digits, as you say. Um, with that, that in the back of our minds, this idea that producer price inflation led consumer price inflation, and that was the big hint of what was coming. Let's turn to the recent inflation data, especially in the US, where we had this big inflation spike. It almost got to double digits, but recently things have changed, right? Uh, yes, they have. And to be fair, producer prices do not lead consumer prices with a stable lag. They never have, and in my opinion, they never will. And the simplest explanation for that is that companies, and this varies a lot by industry and then within industries by individual companies, they don't simply pass along price pressure increases to consumers in any mechanical way. There are always decisions being made. Some contracts are long-term fixed price contracts. And if the spot price of an input cost goes up, that company is not necessarily under pressure to pass it along at all, perhaps for a year or more. However, in many industries, the spot price is where the liquidity is, and then you'll get things passed along much more quickly. But then even there, some companies will be willing for strategic reasons, holding on to market share, they'll be willing to absorb a hit to their margins in order to keep that market share. And yet beyond a certain point, they'll say, no, we've taken a big enough hit to our margins. Now we are going to begin to pass along some of this producer price increase to our consumers. There's just no way for an economist to model this in any precise detail. They'll claim perhaps to be able to do so because they want to publish a, a PhD paper and they want to add to the academic literature, but ultimately there's a lot of guesswork involved. These relationships are not stable. There's too many qualitative business judgments taking place, too many moving parts. And so I discount such claims rather heavily. We have this divergence opening up between producer price inflation, which is persisting and continuing, whereas the consumer prices in the US have supposedly not gone up at all month over month. So, you know, it's, a, it's the old alligator, crocodile jaws, you know, opening wide and somehow the two are going to have to meet. But what is it going to be? A producer price is going to crash or a consumer price is actually going to continue rising eventually? I think you're going to see variation across industries. However, in aggregate, I would expect that you're going to see the gap close from both sides to some extent. First of all, there's a lot of evidence now that we've seen a big inventory build uh, take place because now a lot of consumers are deep enough into what appears to be an economic slowdown and they're beginning to curtail consumption. And so that's going to lead to a bit of an in, uh, inventory overhang, which will help to bring consumer price inflation back down a bit on the, in, uh, but that said, in some areas, that's not going to be the case at all. I mean, who, who knows when it comes to things like energy and food and, and non-discretionary items, um, there's not really the excess inventory overhang in those components in the same way there is with 
you know, consumer um, discretionary items. So anyway, um, I think it's going to close a bit from both sides uh, here because there is a slowdown taking place. But the net result is, is that inflation's ratcheted a hell of a lot higher. Margins are coming under pressure. And this ultimately, therefore, is looking increasingly like a stagflationary set of conditions, which we've also discussed previously, right? I sort of figured we're going to start with the inflation and we're going to end up in stagflation. And it looks like that transition is happening now. So you don't see the recession as solving the inflation problem and making all of this go away? Not in the first instance. And if you take a look at past big inflations, and this counts now as a big inflation, they're ultimately only solved with significantly tighter monetary conditions. And we have not seen that yet. Uh, the stock market did smell trouble earlier this year, and rightly so. But we're now seeing a material relief rally based on the idea that central banks are just not prepared, at least not yet, to really tighten the screws the way the Fed did in the early 80s, uh, the way the Bundesbank did in the, uh, in, in the late 90s, uh, and, and so on and so forth. We're just not, we're just not there yet. That, that's the key question, though, isn't it, is whether or not the central banks are willing to go high enough on interest rates to bring down inflation. And whether they can do so without triggering a crisis, there's a lot of people out there saying that we can't afford the level of interest rates that would be needed to bring inflation under control without causing a crisis first. Is that your view or you, you think there's a Goldilocks zone in between? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, and I think you're I think you're familiar with my views here and indeed with my favorite metaphor that central bankers are collectively they've been walking a tightrope backwards into a corner. Uh, from which they really just can't get out of. The, the, the only way to ultimately solve this inflation problem uh, is with tighter monetary conditions, but those tighter monetary conditions will hit the financial system and the general economy hard, and you're going to get a hard landing out of this. And at some point, the stock market is going to have to better reflect that. Now, if you're getting a hard economic landing with inflation in the system, of course, it becomes a difficult trade because a stock market values are nominal values and they do reflect corporate profit expectations. And again, it's not clear that companies that produce food, clothing and shelter are going to suffer a whole hell of a lot, even in a hard landing, because everyone needs food, clothing and shelter. Um, so they're going to retain their share of the economy. They're going to be able to pass along price increases to consumers. They'll remain cash rich, generative businesses paying large dividends. And in an inflationary environment, you could argue that to be invested in those sorts of companies, it's almost like owning bonds, because at least you're going to receive coupons that more or less keep up with inflation. Whereas if you're holding typical bonds, uh, you're actually going to lose uh, on the inflation, even potentially in a hard landing, which, again, sounds contradictory. But if you look at the history of stagflationary hard landings, it's not. That's what makes this such a difficult time. And just for the record, my friends tell me that it's just as easy to walk on a tightrope backwards as it is forwards. Uh, but let's not get into that into any detail. Um, one of the interesting things about this inflation spike is that it, the long-term inflation expectations and long-term bonds haven't moved that much, which implies that people expect inflation to get back to the extremely low levels we saw going into this inflation spike. What are you looking for there? I mean, at some point, is everyone going to wake up and realize that actually inflation is going to be quite sticky? Or at some point, we're going to wake up and realize actually there's a financial crisis coming and that's why bond prices are so low? 
Well, it, it, it could be a combination of the two. That is, it's, it's possible that we are going to see inflation decline gradually from here. But in my opinion, the overall growth inflation mix is going to be persistently much worse than it was prior to all of this. And what I mean by that, for every percent of growth that you're squeezing out of the economy, you're going to end up with somewhat higher inflation coming through as a result. Um, so that's going to be a long-term hangover, which is going to weigh long-term on stock market valuations. Whether in an inflationary environment, stock market prices decline substantially is a bit more difficult to predict. But price earnings ratios are going to come way down. Uh, enterprise values to EBITDA, for those who prefer that ratio, it's going to come way down. And indeed, in the early 1980s, we saw price earnings ratios for your broad US and UK indices in the single digits when it was clear that the growth inflation mix uh, was going to stay persistently bad for at least a few years. I, I think that's what we're going to be looking at this time around. So inflation may peak soon. We may be seeing the peak soon, but it's not going to decline as fast as the market currently implies, in my opinion. Yet growth will be weaker than current stock market valuations imply, in my opinion. And so investors really should stay defensive here and take advantage of this recent relief rally we've seen to rotate uh, into more defensive sectors uh, of the economy. Yeah, my next question was going to be what to do about it. And I, I mean, the word defensive is a bit vague when you're facing stagflation because you know you're going to do buy what are you going to do buy bonds or <laughs> you know, the usual safe havens and what really worries me about this this time round is that there don't seem to be any really undervalued assets out there so for example property is supposed to be a good investment during inflation but properties started turning down because it's so overvalued so many other opportunities out there that historically you would look to during periods of inflation or stagflation. They're all over, well, most of them that I can find are overvalued, which does not bode well for people who buy them uh, to try and stay defensive. So what are some places that you're looking at that are not encountering that problem? Yes, absolutely. And, and to be honest, I've been writing about this all year because I think it is such an important topic. Defensive in a stagflationary world means something quite different than defensive in a more normal world, as it were. And what I mean by that is, is what I alluded to a moment ago, that is that stock market valuations uh, are, are likely to come way down, but it's less clear what that means for prices. The best way to get defensive, oddly enough, is to go where the inflation is. You want to go to those industries that are under producer price pressure, but have pricing power and are able to pass on those price increases to their consumers. That is particularly the case when it comes to those industries that sit low on the value add chain, as I say, that is basic industries, materials, mining, chemicals, which includes petrochemicals, importantly, raw energy inputs, in particular, your traditional proven energy technologies, as opposed to the more speculative ones, which are struggling to, to demonstrate uh, whether they're truly sustainable longer term. So you want to get low on the value chain. You want to go where corporations are cash generative and where dividend payouts are a relatively high percentage. Those corporations also simply have 
a shorter duration profile of the cash flows that are modeled into their valuation metrics. Now that might seem a bit of a mathematical mouthful, but what it reduces to is that they are less exposed to long-term optimistic earnings assumptions. And assuming that those longer-term optimistic earnings assumptions have to come down when it becomes clearer to the market that this hostile, stagflationary set of economic conditions just isn't gonna go away quickly, um, those corporations with larger upfront payouts to investors are going to be seen as defensive safe havens by contrast to your growth-oriented, intangible guesstimate based valuation companies, which of course includes a lot of tech. It includes a lot of IP, intellectual property heavy industries, such as big pharma. I, I think those are the areas to avoid. And that also includes financials who are really gonna be in the eye of the storm at some point when the storm finally gathers down the road. Yeah, I think there's a lot of investing conventional wisdom that's been sort of turned upside down. The financials are a good example because they usually perform well during interest rate increasing environments, but that's not necessarily the case during stagflation uh, because of the policy mix. John, thanks very much for joining us and to everyone home. Thanks for listening.